My name is Philip Mikesell. I'm an endodontist from Lima, Ohio. I believe that now more than ever, having a firm foundation of understanding and being surrounded by a community of people who also understand what is most important like you do, that that is one of the things that we are gonna need more than ever going forward. And, and CMDA is that, right? So, you know, if I have some issue, you know, in my office, I can call the CMDA National Office and there are people there who care about Jesus and care about me, who can help me walk through that. You know, if I'm starting to feel burned out, there are people who can help you walk through that. And there are people that can help you to grow. They, you know, there's coaching available and just being surrounded by a group of people who, who have the same passion that you do for not only your area of healthcare, but also for the Lord Jesus Christ and then integrating the two. It's, it's huge. And I think that being part of CMDA is something that every Christian physician and dentist and person who's in occupational therapy and physical therapy and pharmacist and eye doctors and podiatrists and PA and nurse practitioner, it's, it's, it's huge. And, and especially more going forward because this life is hard, you know, it's, it's very stressful to be in healthcare and uh, we need one another and this is, this is a great place. Hi, this is Pastor Burt Jones, and you're listening to CMDA Matters, the weekly podcast of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. Thanks for joining me this week as I fill in for Dr. Mike Chupp, who's traveling internationally this week. Before we jump into today's interview, Dr. Chupp has a quick message to update you on our year-end matching gift campaign. Well, I hope you've been enjoying the testimonies of how your CMDA has been transforming the lives of healthcare professionals. You know, each time I speak at CMDA conferences or visit campus and area ministries, I hear stories just like these. Honestly, I find them very inspiring and they're a tremendous encouragement to me and to our staff here in Bristol in our work each day. By now, I bet you know that at CMDA, we work relentlessly to fulfill our vision statement to be bringing the hope and healing of Christ to the world through healthcare professionals like you and like me. As I look at our community of dedicated healthcare professionals, I have witnessed some of you going after this vision by serving on a GHO or MEI team or other mission opportunities. Others who are working tirelessly as compassionate advocates for truth and righteousness at the state as well as the federal level. And then some of you using your spiritual and intellectual virtue to craft ethical statements consistent with our faith as well as medical science. I often marvel at how the Lord has brought together the gifts and talents of so many to do His work here on earth through CMDA. And friends, this is why I've been asking you to consider a financial gift. While by God's grace and blessings, CMDA has accomplished much for the sake of the gospel, we still have greater opportunities to reach more with the hope and healing of Christ. To encourage all of us to dig deep and consider as generous a gift as possible, a small group of our CMDA champions has challenged all of us with a $320,000 matching gift. 
Thank you for helping us achieve this incredible opportunity right now. To give today, just visit cmda.org match, or you can call our stewardship team at 888-230-2637. Thanks, Dr. Chupp. Our episode today features Dr. Carl Truman, whose name you've heard mentioned regularly on the podcast. He was also our guest on the podcast several times last year. He is the author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which has become a bestseller. If you're not familiar with Dr. Truman, he is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He is an esteemed church historian and previously served as the William E. Simon Fellow in Religion and Public Life at Princeton University. Dr. Truman has authored and edited more than a dozen books, including his most recent, which is titled Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Join me as we listen to Dr. Truman's plenary talk from the recent 2022 CMDA National Convention. I want to talk uh, today about the topic of my book, but to, to take it in some slightly different directions. The background to, to my book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, was this. I became intrigued with particularly how the, the statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, be, had become plausible. Uh, it seems to me that it's one thing for uh, graduate students in, say, Judith Butler's gender theory seminars at the University of California to regard that sentence as making sense. It's, it's quite something else when it becomes a general part of the culture's vocabulary. And it intrigued me that it had happened apparently so quickly and so comprehensively to the point where it was not simply assumed to be true by many people, but the, the denial of that statement was regarded or is increasingly regarded as immoral. That struck me as an interesting phenomenon, and that's what set me out on exploring how and why that come about. And the answer that I came up with was that the, the coherence of that statement I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, really depends upon much broader changes within our culture, changes that have been going on for many years. It isn't simply the case that a statement like that that is so counterintuitive and also pitched so dramatically against the assumptions of the world for so many centuries, if not millennia, it's not the case that something like that becomes plausible overnight without a significant backstory. And the backstory lay in what I call the conception of the self that has been developing over several hundred years. Neither my book at 400 pages nor my lecture this morning at 40, 45 minutes is going to be able to give a comprehensive account of the development of the modern notion of the self. But I want to highlight a few things that I hope will bring out for us the depth and the complexity of the issue. First of all, of course, it's useful to define what I mean by the self. We use the term self often in a very commonsensical sort of way. Uh, you are aware that you are you and not, say, Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden or Carl Truman. We all have a, a basic understanding of ourself, we might say, as 
an individual self-consciousness, aware of our past, aware of our intentions relative to the future. That common sense notion of the self is not the notion that I want to talk about this morning. When I talk about the self in this lecture, I'm talking about something that is, we might say, deeper and richer. What is it that makes you you? How do you imagine you to be in relation to other people and to the world around? We might say, what is it that makes you tick? What is it that shapes your notion of what it means to be a fulfilled and flourishing human being? And I think one of the things that I would say today is that that notion has changed dramatically. Even in the last 100 years, certainly in the last 300 years, in ways that I'm going to talk about in just a few minutes. Second thing to notice about the self is this. The notion we have of ourselves is not typically built upon arguments. It's more intuitive than that. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has this rather awkward sounding term, but I think it's a very useful term and concept, that of the social imaginary. It's awkward because he's using imaginary there as a noun. Typically, we use it as an adjective. What Taylor means by the social imaginary is this. It's the way we intuit ourselves and the world around us. And that's typically not made up of having read books or heard arguments that have persuaded us that certain things are true. Could take a trivial example. Uh, when I leave uh, to check out of my hotel room uh, at the end of this lecture, I will exit through the door at the back. Why? I've not read any books on physics that explain to me why doors work and walls don't for exiting a room. But I intuitively know that's the way to go. That's a trivial example, but we could extrapolate that to many things in our lives. When you think about the sense we have of right and wrong, by and large, Right and wrong is something that we, we develop by osmosis from the world around us. We intuit the world to be a certain way. So much of how we think about the world is not the result of arguments. It's the result of the world we grew up in. We're shaped by the values, the tendencies, the often unexpressed assumptions of the world around us. And the modern self is a result of precisely those kind of assumptions in the world around us that most of us absorb by osmosis. So Taylor is important because he points us to the fact that when we think about statements such as, why is the idea of being a man trapped in, a woman trapped in a man's body plausible, it's not enough just to read the books of gender theory. We really have to look at a whole range of facets of the culture in which we live in order to make ourselves self-conscious as to why we think the way we do. And that's what I want to do a bit this morning. I want to, to highlight to you, first of all, what I think are the characteristics of the self that has come to regard, say, transgenderism, as plausible, and then to reflect upon some of the factors that have created the world where that kind of self is the default. 
The kind of selfhood I think that characterizes our modern day is what uh, Charles Taylor and others call expressive individualism. What do we mean by that? Well, expressive individualism is a, a form of individualism that places a priority and grants an authority to our inner psychological space, our feelings. Human beings have always had an inner space. Uh, read the Psalms, read Augustine's Confessions, read the Iliad, and look at Achilles sulking in his tent. Uh, we become aware that we have, there has always been an inner space for human beings. We've always been constituted to some extent by what goes on inside. The key, I think, for the modern age is this. It's the authority we grant to that inner space is now greater than in the past. Typically, in the past, the inner movement to examine the inner space was followed by an outward movement to set that inner space in context. Again, think of the psalm, Psalm 73. The psalmist is ticked off that the, uh, the wicked live long, happy lives and then die peaceful deaths, while the young die, the, the good die tragically young and often die in agonies. And he's annoyed, he's irritated, he's depressed, he's confused by that until he goes, he says, to the sanctuary. There's an outward move. He goes to where God has revealed himself. And that sort of makes sense of his inward feelings. The inward move is corrected or is shaped or is ultimately understood relative to the outward move. Psalm 88, the most depressing and introspective of all psalms, uh, interesting enough, uses the covenant name of God for God. So all of the psalm's introspection and despair is yet set within the covenant history of Israel. Yes, human beings have always had inner feelings. What is interesting now is that we grant them a dramatic priority. If somebody says, I feel like a woman, even though I have the body of a man, we as a society are inclined to grant more authority to the feelings than we are to the external authority of the body. Transgenderism might be the most dramatic example. This kind of uh, notion of the self leads, I think, to a default position where we tend to tilt towards seeing the world and others as always something of a potential threat. It sees the world and it sees other people as good to the extent that they meet my psychological needs. It's, uh, I could have to offer a more elaborate argument for this. I'm really giving just bullet points here. But this also then tends towards seeing the world as having no objective moral shape, but rather the moral shape of the world being provided by my own psychological needs. In fact, this kind of world tends to see claims to moral objectivity as manipulative. To claim that something is good for everybody is often interpreted in this kind of world as, if you like, a power play. One group attempting to assert its normativity over all other groups. And ethics become a function of what makes me happy. Think about the philosophy of marriage. When was marriage redefined in the United States? It was not in 2015 with uh, United uh, Obergefell v. Hodges. 
It was in 1970 when Ronald Reagan, then governor of California, signed no-fault divorce into law. Think about what no-fault divorce does to marriage. It turns marriage into what is typically regarded as a lifelong bond to be broken only under the most extreme circumstances, abuse, adultery, death, a bond to be broken under the most extreme circumstances into a bond that can be dissolved for any reason or no reason at all. That turns marriage into a sentimental bond that works for the happiness of the contracting parties. And as soon as it isn't working that way, they can get out of it. Interesting enough, children become collateral damage in that kind of situation. One could talk a lot about how children have become collateral damage in so much of expressive individualist society. But no self-fault divorce is a good example of this kind of shift to the importance of inner feelings and the shift to seeing individual personal happiness, specifically, I think, adult happiness, as the be-all and end-all of what constitutes the good. The self underlying this notion of the self is autonomous, first and foremost free. It is selfish in every sense of the word. It is directed to the self and it places the self first before others. And it is unencumbered by natural obligations or natural commitments. Obligation to anyone or anything beyond myself is voluntary or contractual. That's where this tends ethically. The history of this, well, there's a, there's a long history of this, but I could pull out a few uh, high points or low points, depending on, on what you think of the story. Uh, certainly, the, the crisis of authority at the Reformation plays a significant role. The Reformation represents a major change in Western society on a whole host of fronts. Not least, the authority of the external institution of the church starts to get weakened at this point. It will find its apex in the American experiment, where you have, I think, the great, uh, the great thing, freedom of religion, but freedom of religion doesn't come without cost. The cost of freedom of religion is that religion becomes a mere choice, and that shifts power away from the institution and towards the individual. It helps serve this moving of the individual to the center. We see it intellectually in the rise of the importance of the first person in philosophy and literature. Descartes, uh, I think, therefore I am. We could even think of Martin Luther with his, and I'm a big fan of Luther, with his emphasis upon the need for individual faith. We could think of the great French essayist Montaigne. I think Montaigne is the first great literary figure who starts to write about I, I this, I that. Montaigne is interesting in that he really starts to develop the first person narrative. We also see another strand of this developing with somebody like Rousseau, and particularly the Romantics. Uh, once external authority gets weakened, where do you go to for moral authority? Well, the answer of Rousseau is 
You only need external authority when something's gone badly wrong in the first place with people. Left alone to our own devices, we should be naturally empathetic. The Romantics, particularly a figure like uh, William Wordsworth, trying to recapture something of the innocence of rural life as a way of getting back behind the, what he saw as the fakery of the industrial, rising cities, urban life. Rousseau and the Romantics move inward to say, natural human feelings, that's where we should find our moral authority. And we can see there's some sense in that. If we walk out of the building today and you see some old lady being mugged on the street, uh, and you have to Google, what do I do when I see an old lady being mugged? We would say, you're a psychopath, and that's a bad thing. Naturally, most of us don't reason ethically when we see things like that. Feelings are important. The Rousseau and the Romantics capture something very important. What unfortunately they're doing, though, is intensifying that authority of the inward, the authority of feelings. And then with Freud, and I'll touch on Freud a bit later, we get the profound sexualization of the inner space. That's key, I think, to much of what goes on today in wider society where sex has become not something you do, it's not an activity one engages in, it is something that one is. It's an identity, not an activity. The same time as we have these trends, we see the collapse, certainly over the last 100, 150 years, of tr traditional external forms of grounding our identity. Institutions that demand, I would say, a sacrifice of our inner feelings. The family, the church and the nation, all three institutions have become dramatically weak in the last hundred years. And I think one of the reasons for their weakness is they all demand a sacrifice of the self. There are other factors that have accelerated this issue for us in the present day. I would say consumerism. What is consumerism? It's predicated on a future-oriented myth that possession of the next thing will bring you happiness, that sense of psychological well-being. That's what consumerism is. Just as lethal in some ways to the way we think about what it means to be human are commercials. Because commercials play to this idea that you and your desires are the central thing about you. And their satisfaction is the most important thing in which you can engage. And think about technology. Transgenderism is only plausible in a technological society. Only once we can imagine that we can change our bodies to match our inner feelings... Does that become a plausible strategy? And we can only imagine it once technology has arrived. Technology has not simply modified the authority of the body as we imagine it. It has completely transformed it. Technology, I would say, feeds our belief in the world's moral shapelessness. That which was articulated by, say, Nietzsche in the 19th century, that the world has no objective moral shape, well, a few people read Nietzsche, but that vision is very plausible and very intuitive in a world where technology is very dominant. 
I want to talk just briefly as I draw things to a close now, particularly of the power of sexual desire in all of this. We are a sex-crazed society. Why? Well, I think of all the, the forms of modern identity politics, I think sexual identity politics could be the one that's here to stay. Uh, racial politics, as, as brutal as they are at the moment, uh, we know that human beings have existed without a concept of race before, and it might happen again. It's not essential to being a human being that we think of things racially. The erotic is a hardy perennial of literature. The reason why we can read the Iliad today and it makes sense is, well, it's, it's kind of like a soap opera, not wanting to trivialize it, but it operates in the same dynamic as soap operas do. One guy falls in love with another man's wife, steals her, runs off with her. The former guy then launches uh, a 10-year campaign to get his wife back. We can read that, we can sympathize with the story because we know the power of the erotic in our own society and indeed in our own lives. And I would suggest from a Christian perspective, Sexual desire is powerful, of course, because it is connected to procreation. There is nothing analogous to procreation anywhere else in human existence. It's amazing when I held my granddaughter in my arms for the first time, that to think that life that my wife and I had created had gone off to create life. That's amazing. I always thought that Psalm 128, you know, may you live to see your children's children, was simply saying, may you live a long life. Actually, it's saying something deeper and richer than that. It's a great blessing to see your children's children. Sexual desire connects to the image of God because it is creative. Think about pornography, though. What does pornography do? Pornography degrades sexual desire by removing it from any relational or creative context. We tend to think of pornography, it promotes lust, yes. Uh, it objectifies the people on the screen, yes, very bad things. But we know that sexual desire is most appropriate, not as sexual desire in itself, but as the sexual desire of one person for one other specific person. The mainstreaming of pornography reduces the other person to a mere instrument, well, the person's on the screen, instruments for my satisfaction, and detaches sexual desire from its real context of intersubjectivity. That sex is ultimately not simply about the pleasure we gain from it as individuals, it's about who we're with at the time. Pornography is perhaps just one extreme example of the triumph of the individual and the dismissing of everybody else. And I think the fact that we know that sex is about more than us makes us intuitively understand that this expressive individualism has to be wrong. I say to the students, you know that if somebody slaps your face, that's unpleasant, but you'll get over it. If somebody sexually assaults you, what have they done? They've stolen something of your selfhood from you. And that's why we regard it as so obnoxious. And that's why we treat it as such an extreme crime at law. We see David 
in the Bible engaging in precisely this sort of thing, don't we? It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived... And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Notice here, here we see expressive individualism on full display. Notice the role of aesthetics. We're told he saw and she was very beautiful. The writer is deliberately echoing the language of Genesis 3. He took her. He took her just as Eve took the fruit, seized an object. Notice, and there's big debates in the literature about whether this is a sexual assault or whether it's a consensual adulterous affair. I lean towards the former. You can argue it both ways. I lean towards the former for this reason. She's depersonalized. Notice the writer specifically refers to her just as the woman when she's in relation to David. She's not a face, she's a body. It's kind of pornographic. The next time she's identified as, by name as Bathsheba is when she mourns for the death of her husband Uriah. David here is the modern person. The person for whom feelings and desires override everything. For whom the world has no moral shape. And for whom other people and situations exist only if they can be turned to my advantage and my immediate satisfaction. We live at a time where the notion of selfhood is a profoundly dangerous one. It's a profoundly fictional one because it's unsustainable. Where this stuff goes wrong is it assumes our autonomy and it does everything it can to reinforce that myth. In actual fact, human beings are not autonomous. We are made in God's image. We are made at any point in our life with responsibilities, obligations, and dependencies. And any notion of what it means to be human that doesn't place those things at its core is doomed to disaster. And that, sadly, is where we find ourselves today. We are trying to make God in man's image, not accept that men and women are made in God's image. And I end with a quotation that captures this rather dramatically and powerfully. It's from the Russian Orthodox theologian of the early to mid 20th century, Sergei Bulgakov. In the foreword to his great book on the person and work of Christ, the Lamb of God, he makes this statement about modern society, and he's thinking about Russia post-revolutionary Russia, but I think it applies to the West in general today. A question slithers like a serpent over the earth. It's using the language of Genesis 3. A question slithers like a serpent over the earth. Whose world is it? The God-man's or the man-God's? Christ's or the Antichrist's? Well, the world around us, I think, has given its answer. It is the man-gods. The challenge for us who deny that, 
is by our teaching and by our way of life, by our worship, by the way you ladies and gentlemen uh, administer and think about the healthcare that you provide to show people first and foremost that the world is the God-man's. If you would like to purchase either of Dr. Truman's most recent books, you can find them here at CMDA in our bookstore. You can visit cmda.org bookstore. If you haven't read The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, I highly recommend it, as it can help you find a deeper understanding of how sexual identity has become so prominent in today's rapidly changing culture and how to respond to it from a Christian perspective. Strange New World, which is his latest book, was recently added to the CMDA bookstore. So be sure to look for that one as well at cmda.org bookstore. Here at CMDA, we know how important this conversation of sexual identity is in our changing current culture, especially for healthcare professionals who are caring for patients experiencing gender dysphoria. That's why we're partnering with the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary to host an in-person conference called Critical Conversations on Identity and Gender. As Christians in healthcare, how do we speak effectively, truthfully and graciously while giving care in such an environment? Please join us for this critical conversation as we consider the theological, medical, legal, and pastoral perspectives on meaningful care as both individual caregivers and as fellow members of society. You can join us live in Dallas, Texas, or virtually on August 5th and 6th. Registration is now available at cmda.org events. If you enjoyed Dr. Truman's talk today, then I hope you will plan on joining us next year for the 2023 CMDA National Convention in Cincinnati, Ohio on April 27th through 30th. Our speakers include Jerome Adams, former U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Daryl Bach from Dallas Theological Seminary, and Dr. Katie Butler, who was our guest on CMDA Matters last year, and many, many more. Last year we sold out, so don't wait to register for this year's CMDA National Convention. There is such value and support in joining together with your CMDA family at the convention each year. And just for our podcast listeners, you can use the promo code PODCAST for $25 off registration fees for physicians and dentists. Visit natcon.cmda.org today to register. The weight of these topics in today's culture can often be overwhelming. So I wanted to take a few minutes and share with you about the work we're doing in the Center for Wellbeing that can be helpful to you. At the Center for Wellbeing, we provide coaching and caring for healthcare professionals. We are helping our members align with God, optimize well-being, and maximize their influence. If you find yourselves feeling some of the symptoms of depression, or if you're feeling burned out or overwhelmed by your daily demands, please reach out to us at coaching at cmda.org. You pour yourself out for others every day, and this is a place to be refilled. Our coaches want to help you find that sweet spot of life again to help you find or regain what the Bible calls shalom. For more information, visit cmda.org wellbeing. Make sure you check out the new episodes of Faith Prescriptions that we recently released. This on-demand video study is free for CMDA members and is specifically designed to help you live out and share your faith in your practice. 
It provides training on everything from LGBTQ issues in the healthcare arena, to praying with your patients, and sharing your faith in ethical and appropriate ways with colleagues and patients. You can get started now by visiting cmda.org learning. One last announcement for you, and this one is just for the ladies. You're invited to join Women Physicians and Dentists in Christ, known around here as WPDC, at their 2022 annual conference on September 15th through 18th in Newport Beach, California. The theme this year is found in Matthew 11:28, which says, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Topics include burnout, dealing with difficult patients, end-of-life care, navigating your career post-graduation, and more. Student scholarships are available for currently enrolled medical and dental students, and a men's track will be available for those whose husbands want to come with them. So join the ladies of WPDC for a weekend of fun, fellowship, and worship as you find rest in our Savior. For more information or to register, visit cmda.org WPDC. My prayer for you today is that God will give you courage and wisdom and that Christ's love would empower you to communicate love and truth to your patients. By doing so, you are bringing the hope and healing of Christ to the world. And that's what matters to CMDA and CMDA matters. God bless and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily endorsed by the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. CMDA is a nonpartisan organization that does not endorse political parties or candidates for public office. The views expressed on this podcast reflect judgments regarding principles and values held by CMDA and its members and are not intended to imply endorsement of any political party or candidate.